Welcome back to Meet the Creatives. I'm here with Chris Doe. I am honored to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know a lot of times that we that on the show we kind of go from the very beginning, the origin story. Uh, I know that there's a lot of great interviews with you on the internet and a lot out there. So I'd love to just jump into the practical stuff. I really think that people like yourself are really kind of leading the way and doing it in a way that's kind of unconventional and can kind of like really shake things up and empower people. So what made you want to do that? I know obviously you're the CEO of Blind and you've done incredible work with that. You know, with the future, what was it that made you want to kind of scale this kind of educational media platform and how did you get into that? I think like many things in life, I would love to take credit and tell you that it was like a spark of inspiration that I drew on the back of a napkin and there was this really clear roadmap. Yeah. And that's not the case at all. That's not the creation story that's real. It's like many things, you bump into things, opportunities present themselves, and you sit back and observe, like, maybe this is something I should be doing. So for me, it was the catalyst of Jose and myself getting together, and him encouraging, dragging me reluctantly to step in front of the camera to produce content. And mostly, that content was designed to sell things that we were making. So it followed a formula that I was already familiar with, having worked in commercial production for very many years. So yeah, we can do that. We can get in front of the camera and now have to be the pitch man. And I went through a whole learning curve and a self-discovery phase where I felt more and more comfortable each and every time I stepped in front of the camera. So it was a progress or a process, I should say. And I made progress along the way. And so then for, for me, then the moment happened when I started to see that an audience was developing hungry for this knowledge because you put out content into the world and almost always they never you never hear back from people right i made commercials for 20 years and i don't know if anybody liked it i don't know if it was effective but on youtube and on other platforms when you put something out there it either hits somebody or it doesn't and then you get to know almost immediately so when people started to watch they started to comment and say wow where have you been i want to see more I i have questions for you it just grew out of that and then it became its own thing. And I'm one to have many hobbies already. I don't need another hobby. So I had to decide is creating content. <laughs> Story of my life, man. Story people, of my life. Right? It's so funny. Is is people is teaching people in mass on scale on an open platform like YouTube is it viable? I wanted to find out. I wanted to find out fast. So it's either gonna crash and burn or it's gonna grow and blossom into something. Thankfully it was the latter of the two options. That is awesome. I love that so much. I'm creating this podcast. Like originally, it was very kind of started out as like, you know, just me on my phone. And then eventually you realize that it's not bots, the real people who need like real advice. And you kind of feel this obligation to create community. How did you go from like kind of just like the YouTube stuff to now you're doing like workshops and classes and things like that? Did you ever imagine when you set out to do it that it would, would go that big or, or not really? No, and I think that's one of the beauties of doing something you know nothing about and not thinking too much of it is that you're willing to do it without the fear of like, what if this happens? If I had thought about all the possible outcomes in terms of good and bad, it might have inhibited me from even taking the first necessary steps or sticking it out right. because it wasn't overnight. It didn't get to where it is over overnight. It wasn't an overnight success. It took years of developing and growing one subscriber at a time a lot of hand-to-hand combat and making sure that we deliver on the promise, which is you exchange something very valuable to us, which is your attention and your time. What we're going to give you is something of equal or greater value than what you gave us. And we could all use a little bit more time on earth. So I treat that very respectfully. And it's a very precious thing that we have. For sure. 
And I think one of the things that's great about what you do is, you know, you've built such an incredible company before this. And it, it wasn't just like a play to, to grow your business. You had already established a business and already had something that was kind of significant. You have the experience. And I feel like a lot of um, creative outlets don't necessarily have that. Like you are a true practitioner who has kind of um, had to pivot multiple times. How have you like managed to remain resilient this whole time? And how do you know when you're like, you know, kind of crumple this thing up and do it again? I am, if anything, an accumulation of experiences, environmental, internal and external influences on myself. And so I'd like to say that, yeah, I, I was in design of my own mind, but I don't know if I can take credit for that. And Right. So here's the thing. Growing up, we moved from neighborhood to neighborhood, probably on the on the clock about every year and a half. So it's very hard for me to set down my roots and get familiar and get comfortable. And that was hard on me as a child growing up, not knowing who I am, who my community is and connecting with real people and developing long term relationships. It's one of the reasons I attribute to being really extremely introverted and shy because I wouldn't make friends with somebody and then they would move or I would move. And right. so it taught me don't make friends with people, just stay by yourself because that's the way the world is. You don't know any other normal thing. But now growing into adulthood and developing a career as a designer and then running my own business, that resiliency, that kind of self-reliance, and also I'm a middle child. So you kind of have to just figure it out on your own. You have to be a very independent person. So we all arrive, I think, at our own level of resiliency at the time in which we need to develop it. So for some people like myself, it happened earlier in life. And for some people in their 40s or 50s are still working through that. They're still suffering from the imposter syndrome. They're still trying to please some idealized version of one of their parents and they can't live for themselves yet. And I'm not trying to judge them. I'm saying we're all on our own path and we're trying to figure it out on our own pace. And Absolutely. that's totally okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I guess if you're the Dalai Lama or if you're a young Buddha, <laughs> you come to this realization much earlier in life, but that's not to say that that's normal for anybody and what is normal anyways. With that being said, uh, I've heard you talk about like action beats intent. Mm -hmm. Yes. What do you mean by that? Okay. Well, so many of us have the intent, the desire, meaning I would have bought you uh, a, a dozen roses for your, for your birthday, but I forgot. I, I would have cooked you a meal. I would have cleaned the house if I knew you were – so that's what people – people try to get credit for things that they think about. And, and, you know, if you were anything like me in junior high or high school, I, I had fantasies about laying in bed and thinking through everything and doing my chores. And uh, when can mind control happen, right? Yeah. Maybe it's – Sign spirit, me up. But, <laughs> right? That's what we want. We want to be able to lay there and physically do nothing and, and take no action. And your action, your body – the things that you do actually say a lot about what your true intent is because it, that's where they say talk is cheap and and that's that's why that comes from that because i really care about you well how do you care will you show up to pick me up at the airport even when it's inconvenient for you right and so we've also realized this other thing especially with the proliferation of social media is that you get a little dopamine hit when you just tell people oh i'm going to crush my goals this year or i'm killing it or hustle life and you actually do nothing because the reward of you saying it is enough for you to satiate you so that you don't feel like you have to do anything with your life. Yes. So for some people who get caught in that loop, I want to give a very tactical piece of advice here where you feel like you have all these ideas and you want to make things, but you wind up looking back at the end of the year and like, what did I actually accomplish? And if that amount is very little or none, nothing at all, then you have to make a promise to yourself from here on out, you can no longer tell anybody what you're going to do. 
The only time you can tell them is after you've done it. I love that. Right? Because that's, that's robbing you of the drive. Tony Robbins talks about this. He says discomfort, a little bit of pain is the thing that drives and motivates you to take action to go do something. Now, that sounds really negative. There's a positive side. You can also think about a goal that you're inspired by, that fills your heart up with joy, and you can work towards that goal. So it's a push-pull thing. So you can be drawn towards a fabulous goal where you're excited every single day to get up and go do it. And you can also be simultaneously motivated by the things that you feel gross about. Like, I don't want to be like that anymore. I want to change. Those things hurt me. I'm tired of feeling overweight. I'm tired of not having enough energy. I'm tired of always losing a bid. Right. Why am I always being overlooked for promotion? So you can you can take that step and you can make that move and enrich your life that way. Yeah, and take like practical steps towards that. Well, you have to take action. I found myself as a young creative. I found myself always um, blaming. You know, it's like the industry or hear hear things yes. like the, like the old guard and stuff like that. Yes. And the biggest realization to me and the the big unlock for me was the moment I realized that those were all just manifestations of my own ego and that was all self-constructed and the only thing that was standing in the way was me yeah i think what you're touching upon is this thing is that when you talk about ego i'm no expert on ego right. and me i neither. think it's Full part disclaimer. of your yeah i think it's part of your self-defense mechanism and what we do as human beings is we seek pleasure and we want to minimize pain so things that hurt we try to find another way to convert that and then we live in denial right so we want to dismiss that i actually have any role or responsibility in the things that happen in my life. Everything happens to me, and so I get to play victim. I, I'm absconded of all responsibilities, and that feels pretty good in a way. I get that, but that doesn't actually move you forward. doesn't get you any closer to your goals. I was reading in Darren Hardy's book, The Compound Effect, and he said one of the biggest key takeaways, if anything, if you read this entire book, is to realize one thing take 100% responsibility for everything that happens in your life. So when you're overlooked for that promotion, instead of saying, well, you know, that person has a better design degree or they were more attractive than me or whatever, or they know the boss's cousin or something like that, because that's not taking any responsibility for yourself. And the reason why this is so powerful, once you come to this realization is once you take responsibility, you can actually do something about it yeah. because otherwise everything's out of your control. And things that are out of control lead to sadness and, and depression, and those are things we're trying to avoid. So when I realized, gosh, why is it that I'm always overlooked for the promotion? What is it that I'm doing? What can I change? What is Susie doing? Oh, you know what? I just realized Susie comes in 10 minutes before me. Susie doesn't take a lunch break, or Susie outputs four times as much quality work than, than what I'm able to produce. And so I need to bone up on my skills. What is it that she's doing? Susie, I always look up to you, and I notice that you've been promoted. Congratulations on that, first of all. I'm just curious. Would you be willing to spend a few minutes every other week and show me some of the tricks and tips that you're doing? Because I, I just feel like I can learn so much from you, and if there's anything I can do, I would be happy to reciprocate. Well, Susie, oh, so now we've turned a, a potential enemy into a mentor of ours, potentially, and, and, and then the boss recognizes, like, look at that. Uh, now Jimmy is following in the footsteps of my star employee. I like that. Where is this going? And yeah. I, I'm going to acknowledge that. Next time the boss comes by, pats you on the back, it's like, I see what you're doing. I want to see you keep going down that path, and I can see a bright future for you one day. So when you take responsibility for your own life and everything that happens to you, 
Right. You're in control now. And now you have one of the most powerful things is choice. What do you choose to do? So if you choose to do nothing, just accept it and don't beat yourself up over it anymore. Don't blame other people. Don't get sad. Go back to playing the Xbox. You're fine. <laughs> right. But if that's not what you want, you got to go do something. Yeah. I think that's basically like what I was getting at. It's like I, I got to a place where I, I realized it was all on me. And now I'm at that place where I'm at like the, the foot of the mountain, if you will. And I'm realizing yes. how much work it's going to take. But I've, I've started my way up the mountain. It's a little bit more difficult than it has been before. But already I can see it's like my, my future is changing and, and changing quickly. So it feels so good to finally do yeah. that. But I realize that it's not like it's like a gym membership. It's got to be like every day and kind of like instilling 100%. that discipline. Mm-hmm. I just need to be more, you know, I need to be like you and really like get my shit together. <laughs> well, so the thing is motivation. I think there's a quote, something I hope I get this right. Motivation gets you started, but habit keeps you going. Yes. So what we got to do is we have to make a habit. And, and what I ask people a lot of times when they ask me for advice, especially from young people, why don't I do this? What is, why aren't I better at this? Why aren't I getting that job? I just ask them, tell me what you do in your free time. And then to go on and make a long list of doing things that have nothing to do with contributing in their personal or professional growth. So I say, you know, if you want to know who you are, tell me what you do because you are what you repeatedly do. How you spend your spare time tells me a lot about what's important to you. So if you want to prioritize binge watching the latest season of XYZ, then that's really what you want to be. But if you want to be serious about cinematography, editing, graphic design, why aren't you reading those books? Why aren't you starting a podcast and interviewing those people that you look up to because that's the person that's going to get ahead. Yeah. And I think also realizing that it just takes like a very, very long time. I think that's something that I, that I realized when I first set out into this field, I was like, this is going to happen quick because like I am like this motivated, but I think that like no matter how motivated you are and no matter how much work you're putting in, like you're still like, there are still people before you that have kind of put in like the hard yards and have done the work. Like I couldn't possibly compare my mind to your mind because you put so much more like into it over time. Yeah. And we all have different learning patterns and how quickly we learn. Somebody who can read a paragraph in a book and extract the entire knowledge of the book. Some people have to read the book four times and then only to get half as much. So that's another way. Like we have to just understand that everybody's on their own path in their journey and we probably don't need to compare. The only person we should compare ourselves to is the person that we used to be. And That's what you great. want, a lot of light between the way that you were and the way that you are. Some people are quite proud when they say this, like, I haven't changed in 30 years. And I was thinking, wow. <laughs> That's my dad. I'm like, dad, it's a terrible business strategy. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a terrible life philosophy. I haven't changed in 30 years. So nothing new has happened in the last 30 years to get you think about things differently. Really? Because the internet wasn't a thing. The smartphones weren't a thing. All these social platforms that we spend time talking to each other on wasn't a thing. Yeah. So you haven't adapted to the world. So evolution was given to us as a gift, not as a punishment. We should use it. One of the things that you're big on, um, I've heard you talk about, is empathy. Why is that so important uh, for people to have when entering the field? I, again, I'm not an expert on this, but from my understanding of empathy, it means your ability to imagine what it's like to walk in another person's shoe, to feel what they feel, to think what they think. And that's a very useful trait because what we're doing is, especially in the user experience design business model and and that field, what you have to do is you have to be able to not be yourself for the day or the moment and think about what the other person is going through because you're going to solve their problem and not your problem. This is what's inherently different, in my opinion, between artists and designers. 
artists are solving problems that they define and they're looking to share their perspective with the world. That's what they're trying to do. They're sharing their own perspective. Whereas designers theoretically are trying to solve problems for other people. And we say this all the time, right? We're problem solvers, we're problem solvers. Yeah. And so when, when you meet a client, you have to be honest with yourself <laughs> and say, whose problem are you really solving today and right now? Are you really trying to solve what they ask for? Like say, for example, they're really into Roman classical design and they want to use serif typefaces with a certain kind of vintage old school look. And you're all about Swiss modern. And so what happens? And now you have conflict because you're thinking, well, aesthetically, this is the way to go. This is modern. This is going to be last forever. Why do the clients have such bad taste? Why are they always making these dumb changes to make me do stupid work? Right. Well, really, then you're imposing your set of standards and aesthetics onto another person, another company, and you also want to get paid, and that's the rub. It's like, who are you working for? You have to get that straight. Most people think they have client problems. I don't think you have client problems at all. Clients have designer problems, and I want to teach designers how to figure that out so that they can prescribe their own solution. Once you get out of your own way and you can be able to empathize and understand what the other person is trying to do, so here's the classic argument. This is a real world story here, okay? Yep. There was a very successful line of fast casual restaurants here in, in California. One of my friends was invited to redesign their entire identity system for all their restaurants, and they're very successful. They're former U USC graduates, business school graduates, okay? Right. He goes in, and two of the three partners are gung-ho to hire him, and he makes a report. He says, you know, I've, I've been staking out through different locations. You apply your logos differently. It's a little bit of a visual kind of cluster F. I think what we need to do is change it, and we could have this kind of vibe to it. Everybody's nodding, nodding, except for one person, one of the senior partners. He's nodding, and he's not nodding. He looks at Aaron, my friend, and he says, hey, are you telling me right now if you change our logo, we're going to get more business? And it caught him off guard because we're not usually asked that kind of question or held accountable for the design decisions that we make. And he said, you know, to be honest, I do not know. I cannot say that it's going to do that. So they're super successful doing whatever it is that they're doing. So a designer comes in and says, I'm going to solve my own problem, which is I have OCD. I need everything to be same and to be consistent across the board from store to store. Right. But if anything, if they change their identity, if they change anything without having an informed business perspective, they run the risk of people saying, did they get bought out? What happened? Right. What's going on here? And now it's going to be a mess. And now they're going to lose sales. So you have to be very, very careful about bringing your own lens into the world and trying to look at a business problem and pretend you're actually solving a business problem. This is where he could have easily said, you know what? You were right. I went down this path. I got caught up because this is how you guys approach me to talk about design. Really, what is the business problem we're trying to solve right now? Oh, we don't have as much customer traffic here at night because we mostly cater to business people. So after five o'clock, it's like a ghost town in here. Well, let's solve that problem. That's right. a problem we're solving, Yeah. right? See, so that's the difference there between somebody who has empathy and understanding might feel what the other person feels to understand their problem. And when you can do that, you're going to see some fundamental things happen. You can see it almost immediately. First of all, what happens is what Blair Enns refers to as the flip, where at the point in the conversation where the clients stop talking and they lean in and they're listening on the edge of their seats to what you have to say. Wouldn't we all like that flip to happen? Absolutely. Where now the spotlight's on us and everybody's like the business people, the people with money are going to listen to us. Second, you're going to see 
the tasks that you're asked to do to, to become much more complicated, much harder to solve, but you're also going to see a rise that's equal to the level of work that you're doing in terms of pay. You're going to make more money because you're solving bigger problems that fewer people have the wherewithal to even to find out about. One of the things I realized that like a lot of portfolios and people coming out of like design school, they seem to be they talk about design as like logos and like visual identities. Um, mm -hmm. But for somebody who is just entering the field, how can you demonstrate that you could even make it make an informed decision like that, having had not actually done it like for an agency or for you know an mm -hmm. in-house design studio? Yeah. First of all, I would say to whoever that person might be, if you're listening to this and this sounds like you, I want to say, first of all, congratulations, because despite not being educated and despite not having somebody tell you this is the way things are, you've come to that realization yourself, which is fantastic. And I need you to take a moment to acknowledge that. So I want to say congratulations to you to say design is so much more than the way things look. Right. Now, thankfully for you, there are tons of books and videos and um, influencers, thought leaders who have spoken about this that you can find. So let's figure out what lane makes the most sense for you. Are you an audiobook person? Are you an old school, I want to hold it in my hand, flip through pages and dog ear things? Is that you? Or are you a visual auditory learner so that you want to learn things you via YouTube? And there's plenty of things. So first is the acknowledgement. And now I know I want something. And that's great because that's going to set you on a path. Now you have to learn just to ask the question. So let's say you're an old school book person like I am. There's libraries that you can go to, use bookstores, and whatever bookstores that are left that Amazon hasn't destroyed already, okay? You go through and you browse through the aisles. You go from one section to the other, and you thumb through the table of contents until you see something that sparks your interest. Here's what I'd like to do. If you don't know this already, books like this are written in a very similar way. At the beginning are the acknowledgments and all the stories about how they came, came upon this problem to begin with. So it's a lot of building it up so you want to hear the answer. So I would skip into the third act and see here's the solution. So they're written in a very specific way. So go into the solution and see like, oh, there's a tone of voice. The way this is written, does it fit my style of learning? Is it too dense? Is it too light? Is it moving too fast? And figure that out. If it's a good thing, go buy the book. It's a super, the cheapest investment that you can make in you because the most that a book's going to be is like 50 or $60 and compared to your education, that's just a drop in the bucket, okay? Yeah, So pick sure. the book up, consume it, tear the pages apart. Do what Francis Ford Coppola did when he directed The Godfather. I don't know if you know this either, but when he went to do it, he wanted to do the material justice. So he literally took every single page from The Godfather, cut it apart, put it in a three-ring binder, taped everything together and made notes in the larger columns that he wanted to get everything right. And when he was on set with the script, he could look at the original source material and look at the script and say, what am I missing here? That's the level of insanity that Francis Ford Coppola would put in to making a film. And The Godfather on many people's list is top five films of all time. Yeah. It's That's how you want to read. That's how you want to study. That's how you want to consume information. Yeah. Was there like a moment in the library or a certain book where there was like a real like light bulb moment for you? Uh, I don't think there's one moment because it was the entire moment. Yeah. Now, growing up, I didn't have access to a lot of resources. Okay, so I went I, I went to the art center in the early 90s and I graduated in 1995. So this is uh, pre-internet, right. and if you can imagine walking into the art center library where they have every design magazine 
ever produced from all over the world. So you have it in German, you have the English publication, you have the American what? version, you have the Italian version. And we're talking about aisles and aisles of magazines. And when you look at the price tag, some of these things are 16 pounds or whatever it is. Right. And you look at it, wow. And what I would do literally, I would just grab a stack of three or four, sit on the couch and just thumb through all these things. Some you could check out, some you couldn't. And that's how we did it. And then when I got bored of that, I would walk down literally aisle by aisle and figure out where all the books were and pull them out and thumb through. Okay, now I know where this book lives and I know where this book. And it was the most incredible resource that you could ever have. And, and probably even in the digital age, because there's so many out of print books, rare type specimens, things that nobody has translated into a digital copy. Yeah. And it, it just it's a it's a resource that sadly so many people overlook. So me just stepping in there, that was my second home. That was it. That it was sounds amazing. Or the library. Like for me, when I when I first uh, kind of like came into the field, I actually he was just on recently on the future uh, with Brian Collins. I went to his library, he showed me some of these old books and kind of like it, it sparked there. I discovered all these books and all this material that was online and everything. But I think the books kind of resonated more because it was more tactile and it was more like overwhelming. I was a little bit like confused on like which way to go and finding direction. Could you maybe give some advice on that? So people like there's no shortage of enthusiasm. There's no shortage of, of wanting to learn. But at what point should you dig in and say like, OK, like I really like books on type. I really like books on all this different stuff. How do you figure out which is a way to go or should you just kind of be uh, jack of all trades, master of none? I don't think you have to be jack of all trades, but, you know, I think let, let me try and unpack this. Even though you asked like really one question, there's lots of components and facets to, to break apart here. Right. When you said like, how do you limit yourself and where do you go? It's like, do we say like, do we limit ourselves on how much oxygen, you know, or how much joy we have or how much love we can give to somebody? I don't think so. Right. So for me, it's like it's knowledge. So here's the thing. Here's where the rubber hits the road or meets the road, okay? You can be an information hoarder. You can consume lots and lots of information, but you got to do something with it. Otherwise, you're going to be one of these intellectuals, and you're going to sit around the world's smartest loser, the world's smartest nobody. That's my fear. Right? <laughs> okay, well, let's take some of that. And so I modified this quote a little bit from Jim Rohn, but wealth is when you're able to convert your knowledge and experiences into capital and equity. You have to translate that. You have to translate it into something. You have to say, take many of the things that you read and draw something and apply that knowledge. Like, oh, I see the curve line overshoots the baseline. I get that. Okay, this is meant to be optical, and this is why inkwells were designed, because this and this happens, because optically, when you reduce it down, it feels heavy. So you start to learn all these things. You, you learn, like, where alphabets came from. right. And you understand, like, oh, that makes me a richer designer, and I can talk about this. So Brian Collins, since we're talking about him, he and Leland gave a presentation. I think that was his name. Um, yeah, at Leland Nashmeyer, yeah. Yes. And he, he talked about this. And so Leland was just talking and presenting about Chobani, and it's like they wanted to democratize food, and there was this pure, authentic quality. So they took the most democratic typeface, and they took Times New Roman, they made it a little fatter. They modified some things. And so when you know the history of a typeface and where it comes from, you're able to speak about it. Most of them are like, yeah, so you chose the serif typeface, right? Right. But when they walk into a meeting, they say, we feel like this is the right typeface because of these reasons, because of what you stand for. Do you agree or do you disagree with us? So he's able to then take a piece of information that he learned and translate it into something. And they're like, we love it. And then he becomes a creative director. Chobani, right? It right. just works out that way. Yeah. 
Yes. Because it's because it's informed by by so much more. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so Translated, true. Right. Whereas, okay, you you mentioned this earlier on when you're when you put yourself out there publicly, there's bound to be people who don't understand what you're doing, misinterpret your intent, or maybe that was your intent to begin with, and there are trolls everywhere, and they come out of the woodwork. Right. And so. That's how they want to translate their knowledge and experience. Well, you used the wrong phrase. And well, back in 1942, it was only 35 cents and not $3.90. Well, great. That's how you translate. Is that valuable to anybody? Probably not. You were better off just becoming an art historian and publishing your own piece and getting off your own butt and putting your information out there. But you know what? That means you got to take responsibility for your life. You can't be the world's smartest jackass and and be successful. (laughs) That's Unless amazing. you make that your profession. Yeah, that that might be my profession. Who knows? I know you have, you have a great and I want to segue into this and, and I'll let you go. I know you have a crazy busy day. I want to make sure I give you some time to do your thing. Uh, last question. I know right along the same line, you have this uh, analogy about this beam of light uh, about how yes. like for people going into interviews, I've learned as this podcast has progressed. I'm letting you take it. Chris Doe, the beam of light. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we know that, right? It's like if you overwhelm people, if you flood people with so much stuff, it just it's overwhelming. Right. So what we've got to do is like you're too woke. Too much info, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you let's just say, for example, if you ask me a question that's so multi-layered, multifaceted, it has four components to it, that's like that white light and it's blinding. Right. So I have to do the hard work of separating that's the blue light, that's the green light, and that's purple. You know, so yeah. I'm able to break those apart. So if you want to be a stronger communicator, if you want to be a better person in terms of marketing and positioning, you got to be able to parse that light out because most people don't have the attention nor the skill to unpack all your amazingness, right? Right. Maybe your mom does. Maybe your dog understands you. But other than that, most people, their attention span is short because they have their own self-interest, things that they got to take care of themselves. Right. You got to be able to direct all the energy so it becomes one powerful burst. Then people understand how to use it. That's so awesome. Where can people find you online? Uh, what's the best place to get in touch with you if they have any questions or, or the, the video you're most proud of right now? Okay, I'll answer it in reverse order. The video that I'm most proud of right now is a video I have yet to make, and that's how I look at my life. I don't want to hang my hat on past victories. I don't want to do that. I'm a, I'm a learning, evolving human being in all ways. I'm learning how to be a better presenter, to speak more articulately. I'm trying to be kinder and gentler. I'm trying to be more inclusive and to appear less of an a-hole all the time. I'm a work <laughs> in progress, and that's what I'm working on. Now, you can find me all over the place because there, there isn't a major social platform that we're not producing content for that particular channel. One of our biggest channels is on YouTube. You can find us there. The future is here. There's no E. It's just because we dropped the E for ego. It's just the future, F-U-T-U-R. That's you can awesome. find me on Twitter, on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at the Chris Doe. That's D-O. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. By the way, I just want to say on, the, on your last thing, I love uh, like your uh, sense of transparency and, and the kind of like the smart comments you make. I love that stuff. And that's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards you because so much of it was so like polished and so like, oh, no, you're doing great. Mm-hmm. Like seeing you rip people was like really exciting. And then I was talking <laughs> to my wife tonight at dinner. I was like, I'm really kind of intimidated. I'm never intimidated for interviews. Uh, but I really am grateful for your transparency, your honesty, and never lose that man. Don't dial that back. I think you should turn it up. I think you should. Roast, <laughs> I think you should roast people even more. Uh, I know, feel like I'm. I, I, I feel like I'm learning already. I'm gonna be a better interviewer after this interview, and I'm ready. That's great. Good, good. So, Rob, let me ask you this question. Yes. What What school did you go to? 
I went to Ramapo College of New Jersey, which only uh-huh. means something if you're from New Jersey and you might know where that is. But I went to Ramapo College for my bachelor's in communication design. And how was the design program there? Was it rigorous? Was there like pretty intense critiques? Uh, no, not at all. I, really? I, I, I my see. education uh, was was like oh, like so-so and then sprinkled in there were some incredible people who fundamentally changed my life. But for the most part, mm. it was kind of a subpar experience, if I'm being honest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you know what? I went to one of the best design schools and I, I, I'm going to have to say that your experience is not unique and that there are going to be a handful of teachers who really inspire you, who open your mind, who change the way you look at things, who give you a real gift because they're gifted teachers and there are not that many of them. Okay. That's the bottom line. Now, maybe the subpar is a little higher. The average is higher, but everybody's going to identify with a handful of teachers. And if you can find yourself three or four teachers in your life, you already have more teachers than you can study under for a lifetime. So that's it. The reason why I asked you that question is people who don't go to a design school who haven't that experience where the teacher really spends the time to nitpick and teach them so much they're not ready for the kind of information in the way that I'm communicating. So I have to realize if I want to teach a billion people on planet earth, I have to be able to adopt a style that teaches more people. This is empathy, right? right. As much as I want to be that crazy art teacher where it's like, everything is garbage. And why'd you show me this thing in the first place? Only a few people can hear that. Only a few people want that. Yeah. I want so I'm it. not necessarily <laughs> changing who I am. I'm just expanding who I am to be more inclusive. Because there are people who don't even have a high school education, who never stepped foot in a classroom that taught anything remotely creative, and they're looking for some answers. So for somebody like me who's blasting on 10 or 11, that's too much for them to process. And so they can't get the information that I'm going to give them. So I'm going to try to find a style that suits me and my personality and to onboard more people because that's my mission. I'm my joy comes from teaching and teaching two people is not as good as teaching 2000 people or two or it. 2 billion. I believe, right. I believe in you, Chris, We're, we got to go Thanks, shoot high here. North star. Awesome. <laughs> man. If I'm ever in, uh, out, out in Cali, I'm going to come visit you. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay. You are the man, sir. You are as cool as everyone says you are. I survived. I feel, I feel, I'm, I feel good. You did a great job. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Chris. Have a great night. Okay. You should take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for checking out this episode of Meet the Creatives. If you enjoyed it, uh, make sure you add me on Instagram, Meet the Creatives NY, and let me know your thoughts. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes. All right. Have a wonderful day. Peace.